Welcome to the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast, where we explore what it means to grow daily and find our best in every aspect of life. Welcome back to another episode of the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Wagner. Hope you all are doing wonderfully. I am very excited to bring you the episode today. Um, when I mentioned a couple weeks ago, thinking about going in random directions, kind of where my interests lead, this was one of those conversations that came to mind. Today, we have Dr. Chris Geertz, a history professor at Bethel University, and he was instrumental in helping shape the types of questions I'm interested in and asking the different types of things that I like to ask because without his classroom, without the types of discussions, the types of readings, the types of thinking that he demonstrated for us, I don't know that I'm the same person I am today. I can say that about a few people in my intellectual experience. And he was uh, an amazing steward of, of thought, I guess, if, in a way that I, it's hard to explain. But in reflecting on what types of conversation I wanted to have, this was absolutely one of them. And it lives up to the billing. I, I am grateful for Dr. Geertz in so many ways. Um, you will hear some of them, and one of them is is my semi-obsession with World War One. So I, we apologize that we go there near the end. Um, I ask a question. Listen to the way that the question is responded to, though, because we get into some really important stuff after that. And, um, you know, he is... He's a very public thinker, and I, that's part of the conversation today is what is it like to be a person who thinks in public, even though he was Yale-educated and got his doctorate there, and he admits to that credential being you know, supposed to be a big deal, and yet he's willing to, to demonstrate failure or exploration and maybe not knowing some vulnerability in a public space. And, and as coaches, as leaders, that's what our job is, is in a lot of ways is to say, here's what I know. Here's the conversation that I, as I understand it, how can we contribute to it? How can we in our group here contribute to it? And let's be frank about it. We don't know all of the details. We don't know all of the things we need to know. And in doing that, we give the people that we're working with the opportunity to explore and bring really good stuff to the table. I would, I reminded of some of the classes I took, I think I took five with Dr. Gerson. So I, I explored a lot of things under his kind of guidance. And in one of those, it was just heavy discussion and I remember the way that he led discussion. He, communicates that maybe he doesn't feel confident that he's a great discussion leader, he's more confident as a lecturer. But I think one of the things that he did so well is listen to the audience, listen to the students and validate what they were thinking and to be able to say, yeah, that is good. And not, but, and, and so I, what can we do as leaders to think about how to say, and in these conversations, I am, I'm so pumped up to bring this conversation to you guys. Check out his work. He has a recent biography of um, Charles Lindbergh, and that was published, I think, about a year ago. His blog is The Pietist Schoolman. Uh, kind of talks about the intersections of Christianity and history and education, and, and for lack of a better term, that those intersections in life are what interest me deeply. And I think, like I said, he had, a, he had a huge role in shaping some of that. So uh, can't wait to bring you this conversation. Dr. Chris Geertz, here we go. This conversation is, is an exciting one for me because it is a former professor of mine, Dr. Chris Geertz of Bethel University. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks, Jamie. It's great to be here. Yeah, we were just kind of talking that you were a little bit uncertain of what this was going to look like because you are not the, the usual type of guest. And I just said, I'm I'm a curious person. You're like, that makes sense. I remember that. About you me. are so, a curious person. I was trying to think back because it's been a few years now. And I, I do remember like this was kind of your blessing and your curse. You're just kind of interested in everything. And so yeah. it, it was really intriguing for me to kind of check in with you these many years later to see where those interests have taken you. So I'm not entirely surprised that uh, podcasting, having conversations with people is part of part of your gig. Absolutely. I um this, this is a nice segue, actually. Thank you for that. Um, it's like you're a professional. You actually introduced me to podcasts in, I would say, 2006, 2007. Oh. You were doing CWC Radio Euro- oh, Modern, Radio right. Modern Europe or something. Right. Don't yeah. probably don't go back and listen to that. Anybody yeah. that's out there. I mean, no, you can if okay. you want. Um, no need. Yep. But that that was in the kind of the nascent stages of of podcasting. What drew you to that process? Yeah, I think it's probably like 2005, six. We we did like a summer workshop for this team talk course, uh, kind of Western Civ survey. And um, I think like one of our IT or teaching learning kind of specialists at Bethel, it, I don't think he even knew that much about podcasts, but he'd heard about it, mentioned to us. And, and one of our colleagues, Stacey Heck, said, hey, what if we did a team podcast? And that, that I, mean, I don't even know if we knew beyond that what would it do, but like, I think the main thing that we took away from it was it was a chance to let students listen in on the kind of conversations that in our case professors have, you know, around the faculty lounge or the table in the dining center or in offices or during meetings. And, you know, in a sense, kind of like making public some things that previously had been um, behind the scenes, um, kind of foregrounding what had been the background. And, you know, in some ways that's a very, <laughs> It struck me as kind of a narcissistic thing. Like, why would anyone want to listen yeah. to that? But it turned out like we never had a huge audience, but my kind of main podcast and collaborator, Sam Mulberry, always pointed out, it was like having a whole nother classroom full of students kind of listening in on this. And then we bring in like guest speakers was the other thing. We kind of expand what our teaching team was by bringing in like, if a speaker came to campus, we would ask to interview them or we talked to other people on the faculty or and it kind of let us stretch beyond what was happening in the classroom to even suggest like, if you want to learn more about this, here's another direction you can go. So, you know, we've done a lot of podcasts and, and they often kind of come back to that notion of like, um, we, we're having this conversation privately, let's make it a little bit more public. And so we've done quite a few and I can go through the litany, but I don't know if that's too interesting for anyone. So how has that shaped the way that you think and the way that you have learned, you know, does one of the things that I, that in my reflection about what to talk about, there was, there's something that you said that has always stuck with me. And it's something I actually use when I get in front of, front of groups, your job. And this, what you were saying is your job as a historian, your job as an academic is just to contribute meaningfully to the conversation in some way. Like this conversation has been happening long before you have been here Mm -hmm. and it will continue to happen long after you leave. So how do you advance it in Mm -hmm. some way? That has always struck me as like, okay, my job is to add something interesting that advances the conversation, you know, for, for a student that I'm working with, they've maybe never heard this conversation before. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just the introduction to it for, you know, what you're talking about. We have these staff type meetings, these colleague to colleague type conversations that we're trying to advance the conversation privately. Let's put it into a public forum so that other people can engage with it also. How did that impact the way that you think about teaching, learning, growth? Yeah, I mean, in different ways. Like one podcast I started with a couple of colleagues a few years ago is uh, called the 252, which was the number of a new class we were doing on the history and politics of sports. And, and so our idea was before we ever taught the class, what if we have like a year long conversation just online where we essentially think out loud about here's what this class is gonna be like. Let's use that as a chance to essentially um, pre-book some guest speakers, um, you know, partly to like record content that we then used in the class, but also like we had this notion that it would be interesting to use sports as a way to get at history and politics and economics and religion and gender and all sorts of other stuff we weren't really experts on it. We, we just had like curiosity and questions and we're fans and we're terrible athletes ourselves, but we needed, I think in a sense, to kind of like try some ideas out, you know, see if they work, see if they didn't work, bump them up against someone else who is more of an expert in the field. And in a sense then it let us kind of visualize the class that didn't yet exist. 
Um, and then COVID happened in the middle of that class. We ended up using the podcast then as part of the course itself yeah. to build a kind of community. Students would, uh, you know, they would listen to something from the podcast. They would contribute something to the podcast. Designments were designed around it. And so in the middle of the lockdown, it gave us a kind of virtual community. And unfortunately, we already kind of knew what we were doing. We didn't have to improvise it on the spot. And, and so there are, I think, different ways that podcasting is interfaced with teaching. But I do like the idea you suggested, Jamie, of all of this is part of a conversation. And as a historian, you're right. Like, it, I'm very conscious of the idea, like, I'm just stepping in, um, you know, and often like relatively recent conversations, because most of what I do is 20th century history, modern history. Yeah. But I also teach classes that go back 2000 years. And because I teach the liberal arts, right, the whole idea is these are permanent things. These are eternal questions, right? Like, and so as someone who lived in Greece in the fifth century BCE has just as much to say as someone who lived in Germany in the 19th century uh, CE, right? Like, yeah. and so a lot of what I'm doing is not necessarily contributing something original. It's like helping students to just hear those voices, uh, help them think about how to listen to those voices and then give them a little confidence to respond and say, hey, I can answer this question too. I have something to contribute. Um, you know, and, and maybe push back a little bit and, and maybe add a little bit of my own take as well. But whether I'm in the classroom, whether I'm writing, blogging, writing books, podcasting, I, it, it's not necessarily um, adding something original. I feel like it's more like, like you said, like how do you move the conversation forward? How do you introduce people to an ongoing conversation? That, that's, I think, a powerful metaphor for a lot of what we do as, as teachers and podcasters too. Yeah, I, I'm so curious about how that that thought process affects what you do daily you know like not even just you just us generally like who's come before who's going to come after i think you know the the audience for this is generally sport driven so if you're a coach like how do you honor the tradition and the legacy that is here and exists in this place that you maybe don't have a ton of understanding about and how do you develop something that somebody else can carry forward is is an eternal question and so I, I was always struck by the way that you used discussion and conversation in the classroom as a means to get to those answers because I let's be completely honest in our discussions and in our conversations I don't think we got to those answers terribly often you know so how do, how do you wrestle with that that you're giving autonomy to these young people you're introducing this concept to them and they might not get there <laughs> yeah and that's okay it, it, I'm glad to hear you say that uh, you enjoyed discussion in my classes because I think I'm a terrible discussion leader. I, 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 I mean, like, I once I get to like a like a junior, senior in college level, like I, I feel like I'm a little bit better at that. So you took yeah. a couple of classes with me at that level for sure. But a lot of what I do is I'm teaching first year students, which these days they're not even just 18 year olds. A lot of them, like we've got 300 some high school juniors and seniors coming to campus this fall. Like they're. Yeah. They are not quite adults. They are maturing thinkers like we all, but they're at, they're at a transitional stage in their development, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so partly it is why like, I actually enjoy lecturing. So let me, let me start there and then I'll come back to actual discussion because um, I think a lecture, it's, it's many things, right? It's a kind of performance. And partly I wanna see students look at someone who's excited about something like history or philosophy or theology because they don't see a lot of models of that, right? They see a lot of other kinds of performance and excitement in the society. They don't see a lot of people who are just really happy to be there in a classroom talking about the Middle Ages or World War One, right? They, yeah. So it's performance. Um, but I also, I have a colleague uh, who just retired, Dan Ritchie, who said a lecture is an implied conversation. It's a, it seems like a very strange conversation because for the most part, only one person is talking. But if you do it right, you are sparking all sorts of at least internal responses. You're trying to get students to pay attention to something and then to ask questions about it. Now, they might not vocalize those questions. They might just jot it down in their notes or talk about it the next hour at lunch, or like we do a small group discussion later in the week, they'll come back later. And that's actually okay because maybe your first response isn't a great response. Maybe you need a noodle on it for a while, yeah. right? And so that's, that's the second thing I like about lecture. Can, can I ask? A question here. I don't want to get too far afield, but how do you prep to do that? How do you prep to anticipate 
kind of the internal dialogue or the internal question that someone might have? Um, by doing it a lot and failing. <laughs> like, I think I probably, I'm, I'm going into my 20th year at Bethel this fall. And I feel like I, I'm, again, I'm glad to like connect with someone from earlier in my career and, and see that I did not do too badly by you. And, and you'd want to yeah. talk to me again. I feel like I've probably, like I've got to the point where I repeat certain courses enough, right? Like I hear this often enough either because the student will yeah. literally vocalize it or they'll write about it more often in the kind of classes yeah. I teach that I, I kind of get some sense of at this point, when you hear this person, right, say this, here's what I know is like a probably upper middle class white Minnesotan who's 18 years old. This is probably what you're thinking about right now. Yeah. Um, and partly because they are like, as, as we keep saying, these eternal permanent things, it's a little bit predictable. Like even yeah. it varies by culture, it varies by age and gender and religion, but you know, these questions keep getting asked because everyone's wrestling. And so like, I've seen lots of examples of people wrestling with a question about, you know, I should give you examples, like what is truth? What yeah. is reality? What is the good life? What is justice? What do I owe to other people? What is a good community? Like th these are not new questions that we're just thinking of asking in 2022 America. And so that's maybe a benefit of being a historian, right? Like you've, you've encountered these, not just yourself, not just by teaching, but because you've been reading a lot from hundreds or thousands of years. Um, and maybe then the final thing I should say, just to get back to your original question, Jamie, and then we can move forward is like, um, you know, like you have to give license to students to fail. Like, I mean, I'm starting to write a newsletter for tomorrow about like advice I would want to give to students as they start college. And one thing is like college, if nothing else, college needs to be a place where your reach is going to exceed your grasp. Like college is a place where you are trying things on and you are pushing yourself. And so it's hard because we give grades at the end of the semester, yeah. right? And, and that has a little bit of permanency to it. But most of what we do, like a quiz here and there, a short paper here and there, like it's okay. Try something on, try an idea out, see if it works, see if your argument holds up. And if it doesn't, that, that's fine, right? Yeah. It's, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> if, you, if you have a bad quiz or if your argument turns out to be not maybe as brilliant as, as when you're talking with your roommate at two in the morning about it, right? Like, that's okay. And it's, it's hard because it, no one likes to fail, right? Yeah. Um, people are not encouraged to take intellectual and spiritual risks in the classroom, right? Um, like, I think one thing I learned from my college experience is I took a couple of classes pass-fail, one in political philosophy and one in art history. And they were the two best classes I took my entire career, even though they weren't really in my field, because since there were no grades attached, I could try things out without any fear whatsoever. And, and so I try to think of how to bring that in and how to give students permission to try things and fail. And I, I think students like you, that was probably a lot easier because student athletes are so accustomed to that, yeah. right? I mean, they are constantly pushing themselves to get a personal best, right? Or to recover from missing a tackle that leads to a touchdown, right? Like you, yeah. you are so accustomed to that. You've that happened most to me your life. a few yeah. times, well, yeah. I didn't <laughs> I'm sure like, you know, I'll trust you. And, and it's harder than I think for some other students like to, to translate that or to find other examples of that or to have to do it for the first time. Like my son hates to fail. He's yeah. really good at school and failing at something is really hard for him. And hopefully he'll have six years here before he gets to college to start figuring out how to do it. But yeah, so there you go. That's, that's another rabbit hole. No, I think that, I think that's an amazing set of, of thoughts around it because, you know, we talk about it. We talk about failure being a place where learning happens. And yet we don't create the space to do it regularly. And you talk about student athletes having, having that perspective, but I, you know, I, I taught and coached with, with another athlete that, that pitched at Southwest state and was, it was a pretty, a pretty good pitcher. Right. And he still competes in town team ball and is kind of rakes, you know, still, and like has this expectation that he's going to be elite at our age. Right. You know, like late thirties <laughs> and one of the things that he and I would talk about regularly is like, it's not just athletes, it's collegiate athletes. And you know, like there is, there is a world where that, that step up that next level of understanding where, you know, you come from a small pond and you are elite and you kind of just assume that everything you do from that moment on is going to have that same set of outcomes, you know? And I think about your son, I really like school, very interested in learning. 
no matter what I do, the outcome is the same, you know? And I think about your class being a place where I learned that, you know, I, I, I was similar as a high school student, right? I, I didn't fail a ton in the classroom. And then I come to your class and, and I think the first class I took with you, I got a B. And so that was a very uh, humbling experience potentially, but I had to think differently. I had to ask different questions. I had to take risks that I wasn't used to taking. And, and then you know, via that failure, I learned how to research better. I learned how to write better. I learned how to engage in the conversation rather than just asserting things that I thought I knew to be true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, like bringing this to athletics, it's, it's really easy as a coach to be like, this is the way rather than there are a bunch of ways. There's a way, not mm -hmm. the way, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know that as an athlete either until probably my junior or senior year where I was given the freedom because, you know, uh, Mike McElroy was on the podcast a while back, probably 50 or 60 episodes ago. And he talked about freedom within the objective, right? Freedom within the objective, get it done, but do it the way that you best understand and know how to do that. I've always like, since that moment, I'm like, that's it. That's what makes a ton of sense to me. I imagine that that same idea rings true as I say it for you. Yeah, I think so. Actually, I, you should really bring on Sam here. So Sam Nolpmore is our podcasting genius. He also works with academic success at Bethel. Sure. And there's this first year course I teach called Inquiry Seminar. That's kind of like how to be a college student course. And this is a good reminder. I have to bring Sam in because he does a nice talk where he gives like some like core pieces of advice of how to succeed when you start. And my favorite one he gives is you need to find your superpower. And he has this thing, like every learner has something they're actually incredibly gifted at. And it might seem just innocuous and banal and mundane to you because just you've been doing it. And someone else would be astonished. Like, for example, you might just be have a really effective way of taking notes or you're just a really good listener, right? In other ways that those of us who maybe have a million things going through our head don't pay attention too well, right? Yeah. Well, whatever it is, like find that superpower. And I think that gets back to the idea of like uh, the freedom of the objective. Like there are lots of paths to success in college, right? Um, and there'll be failures along the way, but as importantly, like celebrate the successes too and celebrate the things that got you there. But the, the flip side of that that I've been thinking about actually this week is um, too often, we kind of forget that college is supposed to be collegial. I mean, there, there's always, I think there's this inclination to think you're just on your own. Like, we're going to throw you in the deep end of that pool and we'll figure it out. And maybe your professor will kind of like sort of cheer you on or correct you or something, but it's up to you. And so I've been thinking like one thing that I wish more college students would do would be like recognize that superpower and then think about, okay, how can I share that with someone else and then benefit from their superpower? Right. Like in a, at the very basic level of like, how do I form a study group? Right. Um, how do I form community around a class or a field? Right. And, and here again, like I think maybe student athletes get this better. Right. Yeah. No team succeeds because of the superpower of one player, even if that's Tom Brady. Right. Like there, yeah. there are pieces that have to fit together. Right. And it doesn't always maybe it's professors do a bad job of like nurturing this sort of community in their classroom. But I, I think. I mean, it's when you recognize that thing that you're individually good at, but then you put it together with the others are good at. And, and maybe that's just like in a discussion to bring things full circle. Like um, that conversation only works because all of us are taking part, right? And it's, it's maybe it's because some of us are listening to whoever is speaking at that point. Maybe it's because one of us challenges an idea that maybe needs to be challenged, right? And, and take a risk and speak up against it. Like, so I, I think I've started with your point and strayed even further. No. But it, this is actually really helpful for me because I like I try every few years to sort of like rethink my philosophy about what we're doing in education. And so you're, yeah. you're tapping into some things that have been going through my mind the last week or two. Well, and I, this is one of the things that I, I always felt from you. And it brings in, again, one of the reasons that I reconnected with you as I was reading uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobus Dumay. And then... Uh, your, I kind of was reading through the notes and I was like, and that was probably eight months ago, 10 months ago, something like that. And I'm like, Oh, she thanked Dr. Gertz in here. Like I need to go and connect and see what he's up to. And so then it kind of led me to your blog and, and all of the things that you do in your writing. And one of the things that you wrote about even relatively recently, I believe or reposted was, was on this idea of on thinking in public and being wrong in public, even though you're the expert, right? Being 
vulnerable enough to be on stage and say, I'm not certain that this is true. Even in 2005, 2006, 2007, when I first engaged with your teaching, you know, when you were a pretty young teacher, I was shocked by how much better at the teaching thing you were than a lot of professors. And I don't mean that to, to be a, a kind of, Hey, you're on the podcast. So I'm going to, I genuinely felt that, you know, like a lot of professors were experts, but they didn't necessarily understand how to convey what they understood or knew. And I walked into the room and was like, this is a different experience. Yes. And you did it. You brought your guitar and you played songs. We read <laughs> novels. We read, I, like I just said, before we got on, we read a book called The Great Cat Massacre, um, which is, you know, a, a series of stories about, you know, kind of peasant life in, and you just made us think differently. And I felt like that, that, I don't know. So where did you, did you take pedagogy type classes? Where did you understand the teaching aspect of being a professor? Because being an expert, being on stage is not the same as teaching. And then you just wrote about it as like, I think the thing that you do well is you, you fail in public mm-hmm. and that actually encourages us to think like, mm-hmm. why, why is he comfortable being wrong? Isn't he the, you know, the guy with the Yale degree? Right. Yeah, there we go. Boy, I have lots to say here. So the first Sorry. really embarrassing thing that I don't think we broadcast too often is like at least at the college level, your professors were not trained to be teachers. Yeah. Like, I mean, teachers you have pre-K through 12 are for the most part, they're licensed educators who have taken a lot of classes in the theory and praxis of pedagogy, right? Who have, have thought through all of this, who have done a lot of practice of it, you know, all the way up through getting their license, right? Like <laughs> the way you learn to be a professor is uh, they pay you a small stipend to be a, a teaching fellow or a teaching assistant, which mostly means you grade the papers that your professors don't want to grade. <laughs> you watch yeah. them and you imitate them. No, it's, it's trial and error, right? Like that's, I mean, before I came to Bethel, I had one year where I taught as an adjunct at a couple of different places in Connecticut. And it was helpful because there were very different institutions. One was this kind of very expensive private Catholic university in the wealthiest part of Connecticut. And one was sort of the second tier state university where you had just a very diverse group of students. And so like, it was good for me to sort of have I'm a baseball fan. So I'll say like being in the minor leagues a little bit, like it wasn't really my job. No one would remember my failures. The very first teaching evaluation comment I got was a student who anonymously wrote, don't be such a tool. And <laughs> apparently it worked. No one's ever said that again. So I, I learned from that. Right. And so like, it's, there you go. You have to fail. That's, right. Yeah. And, and like for me, so to, to transition that, I think I mean, like for a lot of college teachers, what you have to move from is you spend all your time in graduate school developing very narrow expertise. And then almost immediately you move into classrooms where you can't just teach that expertise, right? Like that yeah. no one is interested. Every class you teach is gonna be broader than that. And so you're instantly back into realms where you're not an expert. Like you read a book seven years before and that's gonna be the basis of a lecture you've given, right? And at the same time, like you feel very inadequate because you're the junior professor, you don't know anything and you know that and you hope your students don't realize it. And so I'm kind of glad you caught me like maybe two or three years in the first year, I'm not sure was so great. Like by, by the second year you start realizing, okay, the reason that what I'm doing has value is not that I'm bringing some expertise that's been honed in an Ivy League institution for six years, right? It's that I'm bringing curiosity about this and I'm bringing passion about this. Like I, like I said, I'm modeling, hey, look at that guy who's interested in 20th century Europe. That's weird. I wonder why he's interested in that. I, I'm, and you start to learn, this is about asking questions. It's not about disseminating little droplets of knowledge onto a grateful peasant audience, right? Like yeah. it's, it's to be up there asking a question. And what took longest to realize is that it's, it's actually good to be vulnerable, right? I, I think in the piece that you're talking about, I mentioned getting back to my office after a lecture one day, and I got this email from a nursing student who was taking a required gen ed class. And she said lots of really nice things, but the main thing that stuck with me was this idea of like, you were willing to say you weren't sure about something and you were willing to say, I don't know that I'm right about what I say about this. And and that's maybe the most important thing to be able to model because, you know, hopefully students trust you and there's at least a little bit of not deference, but respect. And so they're going to take that seriously. And that's an important thing to show because it's, 
it's admitting, I guess, a kind of failure, but it's also admitting a desire to keep learning, even when you're 20 years into your career. And even when you've got this seemingly fancy credential that establishes your intellectual brilliance, right? Like it's important to admit that. And then kind of the larger thing that I think I've always known about teaching was um, you just need to be yourself, right? The worst thing you can do as a teacher is think, well, here's what a teacher is supposed to look and sound like. I'm going to try to match this. And I'm going to try to be as distant from my students as possible. The, the best advice I ever got as a teacher was, was from this former colleague, Stacy Heck, who told me after like my fourth lecture, that was great. Keep doing that because the best thing you can do as a teacher is to magnify your personality. And so the kind of person that you are, um, at home with your family, the kind of person you are meeting one-on-one -on -one with the student, the kind of person you are up in front of 150 students, you know, you, you, in that 150 student classroom, you really have to make a bigger version of yourself, right? Yeah. And you've got to like energize that classroom because not everyone wants to be there, but like there should be some kind of consistency there. Yeah. You should kind of recognize um, in, in social science, it's called self-similarity across scale. Like whether it's you know, a very small version of it, very big, like it should sound very familiar. And, and so you've, you've got to be true to who you are and you've got to be willing to share that, not to hide behind some sort of like archetype of here's what a history professor sounds like. Yeah. Right. And so for me, that, that takes on silly things like bringing my guitar to class and playing country music in the Cold War class or teaching you all the Marseillaise in modern Europe, yeah. right? Like that, that's the kind of goofy side of my personality that hopefully comes through in the classroom or on a podcast or when I'm writing. And, and so I think, I don't know where I learned that necessarily, except, you know, probably through trial and error and through listening to other people who are good at it. But that that's, I guess, the secret. Yeah, it worked, right? I mean, success, I guess, we'll it, it worked, right? Yeah. Like that, that is something that I've found also, you know, I am, I'm a giant cheerleader and I have huge expectations, right? That like I have really high expectations and I hold you to that. And I, and like, and that is, that is me right in my heart, in my life. I have high expectations of myself. If I'm going to read, I'm probably going to take notes, you know, like if I, I'm probably going to do something that helps me solidify that reading or that learning. And I expect other people to do that. Also, they might not be me and I don't, you don't have to do it the way that I do it, but like take it seriously, grow, get better, do the thing. And I'm super curious. And so when I see something new or exciting, I'm excited. I'm mm -hmm. engaged. Mm -hmm. And you know, my students, my athletes, as I've, as I've done this longer, like they respond to that and it works. And I'm like, okay, do more of that. You know, like grow the scale if necessary, right. Magnify it, amplify it. And you know, when, when you win a state championship, like, mm -hmm let all of the crazy that is inside of you that you may not want out out. Cause the, the students, it doesn't matter what the parents think necessarily. The athletes are like, that is the greatest thing in the world. I just made him so happy. Right. And, and so I, I just, I'm, I'm struck by, by that acknowledgement because I think for a lot of us, we, we want to, I don't not be robots, but we want to reproduce mechanically the thing that is guaranteed to get results mm -hmm. and like that mechanization like mechanization of us is not effective because we i am not the same person i was four years ago three years ago two days ago right because I, something else has grabbed my attention and my curiosity today mm -hmm. and so when i bring that same repeated lecture that same repeated teaching and just try and like robot that thing out there, it lands really flat, really dull. And so, you know, one of the things that kind of drove me out of teaching in reality was this idea that I had to be amplifying it every yeah. single time. And so I yeah. wouldn't, how do you deal with that, that, that thought that I'm, this is not no longer interesting to me in the same way that it was. I'm no longer as curious about it and I can't bring the same energy or passion. What are the students going to think? Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me acknowledge what I guess I, I probably should call like my privilege, right? So the first privilege I have is that I'm a college professor. I'm not a teacher who repeats the same preps, right? Um, I've got a lot of freedom to sort of like change my classes. Not every teacher at every level has that. Um, uh, I get a sabbatical every once in a while, which not everyone does. So I get to reset and refresh, right? Like, um, and then the second thing is like, it's probably easier for me as, especially in my setting, as like a middle-aged white guy to do what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. 
it's a lot harder, I would imagine, if I'm a person of color, if I'm a woman, where you encounter students who expect their professor to look more like someone like me, <laughs> to be yourself, right, and just magnify who you are, like that, that can be uh, risky and scary. Yeah. So I, I need to acknowledge, like it's easier. Really important to, to acknowledge, yeah. Yeah. Um, all that said, I, I am just endlessly, uh, um, I'm a tinkerer. Like I hate repeating myself. I mean, like this will even come up as I'm talking, I'll suddenly realize, oh no, I said this like last year when I gave the same lecture and I'll say, oh, I didn't really want to say that again. I just said this last year. And so I, I don't end up redoing things, revamping things, but even like something that was really helpful that sounds stupid the last three to four years is I shifted from PowerPoint to Google Slides, which was just because it was getting really frustrating to bring my MacBook into a classroom and hook it up to cables. And so I thought, well, yeah. if it's on like Google, I can just like log in. And, but even if I just like retyped all of those things in again, and like I teach my classes every two years for the most part. So like I went through this kind of like two to three year cycle of like gradually like rewriting everything. And even if it yeah. seemed the same, like the fact that I'd had to redo it meant I would rethink each thing differently, right? Like, so that that's one way I've, I've done it is I just tinker a little bit. Honestly, it's why, I hate to say it, this is another kind of privilege. COVID, the lockdown was really, it was very generative for me. I got a lot of writing done. I reset some of my behaviors and my work life stuff, but also it was like, hey, we're going to come back in the fall. We're going to have students zooming in and quarantine for a while. Like, it was kind of great just to have a moment to like rethink and reset everything. What's weird now is a lot of the classes I taught in fall of 2020, I'm now teaching again this fall. There's no like, I don't think we'll have much quarantine or isolation. I have to kind of like think, okay, so what do I keep of that little experiment we did two years ago? Or how much do I go back to what we did like four years ago? So I'm in the middle of making those decisions about my classes. Um, yeah, I think there's just this kind of pervasive um, unsatisfiedness is not a word, but I'm going to use it. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's not a great thing. And I think it probably could lead to burnout, right? Like I, sure. I'm, I'm now halfway through my career as a college teacher. Um, can I keep doing this when I turn 50 in a few years, when I turn 60, like when I get closer yeah. to retirement and the end is in sight, am I still going to be like fueled by that kind of desire to like make it better to tinker with it um or at a certain point in my career will it just be that's good enough yeah right? like i've done this before i know how to do this i know what's going to get a response i'll just do that again like i i worry about that like yeah. i read a book once by a professor at wheaton college in illinois and it really wasn't about his field he's like a new testament scholar or something but it was about like every professor goes through three stages of their career and so I've kind of hints at the first stage. You're like, you're new, you're an expert, but you also feel inadequate. You're not confident. You don't really know what you're doing as a teacher. And then at a certain point, you hit the second stage, which is you actually have figured out who you are as a teacher. And you've kind of figured out the moment. And you've also like outside of that, developed other expertise and acclaim. People start asking you to do more things. You've tried things, right? And all of a sudden people recognize you. You've got like a generation of students under your belt who bring you on podcasts and say great <laughs> things about what an awesome teacher you are which is kind of, I'm in the middle of that stage, right? Yeah. But the third stage is the one I've been thinking about ever since I read the book, which is at a certain point, you're almost done. And you've got grandkids coming and you're tired and you're bored and things have moved past you and you're not interested in keeping up, whether it's technology or the mission of the institution. And so like, I just know that at a certain point here in the next five to 10 years, I'm gonna have to go back and read that stage three section think about sure. what to do because... I think in most of our careers, we all know someone like that who like, no doubt. I mean, uh, is past their prime, right? Think about that phrase we use. Um, like, how do you keep finding ways to motivate that desire to change and to improve? And will I still be as willing to be vulnerable at that stage? Or is it going to take on a different sort of tinge in my mind? Because uh, it's going to start sounding like I'm done and yeah. my career is winding up. And I don't want to admit that to students. Like, I... So partly I just like, I need to find good models. And I've had some, like I've yeah. seen what good late stage careers look like. And yeah, you know, I'm turning 47 this October. So I'm not quite there yet, but it's, it's on the horizon. So I've, but some I'm people might say 20 years of doing anything, there needs to be a regenerative moment, you know, and you said you, you had that. I, I'm curious, like one of the things that I help other programs do is to create systems around some of that where it doesn't get stale. It doesn't get dull is like, how do you have a process that is 
predictable and or new and, you know, whatever it needs to be at the given stage that you're at, you are a relatively prolific uh, producer of content in, in, to a degree in, in the field. How do you, what is your process look like? When are you writing? What is, how do you, how have you systematized getting up and doing the work? Because that is, uh, you know, I write some myself and it is not a, a wonderful experience <laughs> to feel beholden to the page this morning. You know, like I, I got to get up and I have to do that because I mean, at least you have a, a, an audience that it feels like there's going to be a publication. Mine is just kind of, I'm curious about a thing. I'm producing something for a group that I'm working with you know, six months from now, whatever. Yeah. How do you, how do you engage with that process? It, it's it's strange because I it's almost like I've got these two different. I've got my school year process and then my summer process, right? Like for nine months out of the year, you know, it, it's different than an office job. But I, I like I go to the office five days a week for a certain number of hours. I've got a routine, I've got a schedule that I follow, and at the same time, like it's very free flowing. Like I'm terrible. Like I'll I'll spend ten minutes on a task, and I'll answer an email for a while, then I'll start grading for a while, then I'll move on to something else. Like I I I just can't concentrate apparently. But like, um, but then in the summer, all of a sudden, or on sabbatical every seven years, there's no structure whatsoever, right? And then it's like a big part of my summer this year is I don't have a book that's due, I have no deadline to meet, I don't quite know what the next book is going to be exactly, and it's like how do I create a pro? And it's been okay, I'm going to start this morning by playing tennis with my son because he went to tennis camp, but I need to just be active and do something in the morning to get things going besides drinking coffee. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to spend an hour grading this summer class that I'm teaching. And then I'm going to spend an hour writing this newsletter. But actually the biggest thing I've realized since COVID is it's four o'clock and I'm just done. Like, I think when you knew me as a teacher, I was still on the stage of like, I just kind of worked constantly. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think I started to slow that down at a certain point. And, and actually, it was COVID because we were all thrown together. There's no way I could just remove myself for like 14 hours a day behind a laptop and ignore the rest of my family. Like, yeah. I had to start figuring out ways to say, okay, I'm going to work up to this point and then stop. It's time to make supper. Yeah, it's time to go play with the kids or talk to them about what they did in school that day. Like, and I, I've been trying really hard to think about how to sustain that now that we're kind of back to usual so to speak yeah, and so like a lot like i i just i leave at four o'clock right or on fridays it's often earlier than that right and I'll, in the summer it's like at a certain point i will just stop working right and so i guess that's a kind of system i mean it's yeah. more just me putting up boundaries around my time and then trying to get a little bit of repetition in the other word otherwise freeform structure that is june through august do you feel that that structure, that end point has like focuses your attention? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's not a hard and fast deadline. Like, I mean, yeah. things will happen, but mostly what it means is I'm kind of like, you just have to learn to be satisfied and say, well, I didn't get everything done. I thought I was going to do today, but like yesterday I walked into my wife and said, well, I actually felt pretty good. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I did like three things today and like, there are going to be three more tomorrow, but I wrote a syllabus, right. For the class I'm going to start teaching on August 29th. And you know, I'm, I'm ahead of the game. That's good. I'm, I'm going to celebrate that small success. Um, yeah. And like, again, I've kind of reached a point in my career where I can do that. It's a lot harder to say that to someone who's very early in their career, trying to prove themselves, in my case, trying to get tenure, trying to yeah. demonstrate that you belong, right? To say, well, just at four o'clock, stop working. Yeah, because you're fighting that imposter syndrome all the time. You're like, I don't belong in this place. I have to outwork yep. my feeling of belonging, you know, and, and, I don't know that I ever, you know, I taught for nine years. Like I, I coached a lot, you know, 15, 16 years. I don't know that I ever outkicked that, you know, like I ever got past that place where it's like, I, I need to prove to myself really in a lot of ways that I am good enough for this thing. And I think like, this goes back to the thinking in public thing. That's what a podcast is in a lot of ways too, is we're having this discussion in public to say, I, yeah, coaches out there, teachers out there, leaders out there, we're tw 10, 15, 20 years in and it's not gone. You know, right. this feeling of inadequacy about what I, you know, I have the credentials. I, I have, you know, the pelts on the wall in some ways, you know, championship trophies or been a part of experiences that, that made really deep playoff runs or whatever. The, the kids believe that I am capable mm -hmm. and I don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. And, and 
like I said, you know, I, I walked into the room and felt this is a very different experience with this guy in front of the classroom. And at that point in your career, you're like, no, this is, this is a terrible experience, right? Yeah. Well, you probably take this place is where I probably had a little bit more kind of self-confidence. Like it was more in my, like I was teaching European history, right? Cause that I kind of knew something about, but yeah, I, I, I had not thought about the imposter syndrome for a few years, right? Because I kind of reached that stage too of like, you've proven yourself, like I've reached kind of the highest rung on the promotion ladder we've got in my job. Um, but like, there's this one lingering bit of it, which was that in graduate school, at least where I went, the measure of your success is not your ability to teach 18 year olds. Yeah. It's your ability to publish books that people will read and respect. And I had done some publishing, but not really in my field. I, I mean, since writing my dissertation, I had not sat down, researched, and written by myself a single book about a single topic, or at least related to history. And so I decided that I wanted to use a couple of years to write a biography of someone and ended up writing this biography of Charles Lindbergh that came out last year. And I realized partway through, like, I was doing it. Um, partly to prove like to my grad school self, you could do this and you're not yeah. an imposter just because you've managed to get this far in your career with a claim without doing the things you're supposed to do, which is yeah. research and publishing. And I like, I'm very proud of the book. I, I think it actually turned out really well. I proved myself. I could do all those things. Even many years later, it didn't actually sell all that well. Like yeah, it's not going to make happens. any like great difference. <laughs> and like, it was, it was a good, it was a good moment of like, you, you need to just I need to outgrow this at a certain point. Like you just need to set that aside and realize that that was a different chapter in your life. You have taken a different career path than what you thought you were going to do when you were 20 years old. And within that, even while failing and admitting vulnerability, you figured some things out and um, you've got students telling you they appreciate what you do. Like start listening to that and, yeah. and stop listening to that voice of your graduate school self who is, never thought they'd be good enough to, to measure up. Right, like that. Even at age forty-six, I feel like I'm still learning some things about uh, being an imposter and figuring out what it means to succeed. So, who knows what the next twenty years will bring in that realm? Yeah, what a powerful message to all of us to say. You know, like we don't arrive, right? There, this is uh, this is a constant growth journey that we are we are on. You know, it's not decided for us. You know, like we we get to choose how we engage with it. We get to choose if we're going to input something into the conversation, where our place in the conversation is. And, and it might not ever be the thing that fills you up. Mm -hmm. You know, it might not give you the stuff that you thought it was going to give you. And yet it gave you something, you know, that's, yeah. it's just a, a really powerful message. Um, we're going to leave the, the meat and bones of the conversation right there. But I do have one question that you need to illuminate for our audience why is World War I the most important war in history? <laughs> I think that's where you were going. Well, I, it's, well it's, I'm actually prepared for this because I taught a summer online class in World War I. So I, I've been thinking about this um, a lot. I, um, World War I is the most important war in history. And this is hard because I'm teaching World War II in January. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, at least for the next few months, we'll let this answer lie and say that it's true. <laughs> World War I... Um, World War I is the moment that chastens excessive human optimism, right? Like I, there's, there's this very powerful time in at least part of human history and part of the world for at least some people who mostly are white guys, where they start convincing themselves humans kind of master their circumstances, right? They can figure it all out, right? They can reason their way, not just towards knowledge, but wisdom. And they can apply that to harnessing all the forces of nature and they can build cities and conquer empires and invent things to make lives easier. And they can build remarkable prosperity. And some of them is like the 20th century dawn even started thinking we can just outgrow war. Right, like what kind of a primitive thing? Like we don't need this anymore, right? Like we're we're past this stage in our in our in our species evolution. And then it turns out everyone wanted to go to war. At least a lot of people wanted to go to war. At least a lot of twenty-year-old men wanted to go to war. And the fifty-year-old men who commanded them and sent them over the top as cannon fodder. And for four and a half years, you got this just meat grinder of a conflict that wastes a generation of people. Right. And, and 10 million people die and empires fall and revolutions spread and people lose their faith 
in God or in science or in modernity and they question and you get Hitler and you get communism, right? Like, and it's, it's this pivotal moment and it, it, it becomes important, not so much because of all of that, because 10 million dead, that's important by itself. But it then leads in World War II to 50 to 70 million people dying, right? We don't even learn from it, right? Yeah. Or maybe the lesson was wrong, like, because for some people the lesson was, okay, now we've learned our lesson. Now we won't fight a war again. Um, and that partly enables Hitler to come to power, right? And then the yeah. lesson is, well, sometimes you actually have to go to war, but it's an even worse war that's much bloodier, right? And so I've been actually thinking about it this past year because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I couldn't believe how many times I mentioned Ukraine when I was teaching this World War I class, because yeah. like you, Jamie, like I'm always reaching for connections. And I thought, I think what was so flabbergasting to a lot of people about that is we had come to this point of assuming, well, at least in Europe, right? Yeah these things aren't gonna happen anymore. You know, the powerful are never gonna to try to take advantage of that to impose their will on what they think of as the weak, right? You know, we're not just gonna invade a country because we can, that's, that's so 20th century, like we're past that, right? We've set up systems, we've evolved, right? And so to, again, be kind of confronted with that and to realize, hey, that's still part of who we are as a humanity and we can't even maybe stop that, right? Um, and hey, maybe nuclear war is still a possibility too. That yeah. wasn't just part of my 1980s childhood. Like that could be part of my kids' childhood. Like I, I, it's not the same scale as World War One, but I, I wonder if some of that same kind of chastening is happening. We're going to have to work through again. Like, so what do we do with that? Like, how do we decide which wars we fight? And are there things we can do to make that less likely? Are there things we can do to make the international system more just, right? Like that. It's not a bad set of questions to ask. It's a lot of what I spend my time teaching in classes. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to be confronted with that yet again here in the 21st century of like, well, these things can happen I, yet again. It's like every hundred years, right? If you look at history of Napoleon <laughs> in the early 1800s, you have World War One in the early 1900s. Now we're, now we're facing this conflict that is not nearly to scale, but it does shape the sort of questions we were asking again from, you know, like, 1789 forward the modern history yeah. experience right even you know go back farther and and we get the same sort of questions happening through the reformation and through the you know the hundred years war and, and these sort of things and so sorry for you non-history people <laughs> out there things got deep in a hurry but i have a whole shelf of books that are about world war one mostly because i took a class with you about world war one and i wanted it just it was a, a moment of change historically that changed the way that everybody was thinking you said it was a chastening of optimism mm -hmm. right and i and i think that i don't know uh, us as people need to explore the past in some ways to look at what has happened prior to to shape the way that you currently think even if it's just knowing a little something about the community that you live in today mm -hmm. it will broaden our perspectives and our horizons moving forward and, and I don't know, I thank you for teaching me that, you know, in a lot of ways, right. It, I think I, I, I was always geared that way a little bit in my brain, but experiences with people like you have made that a much richer process in my life. And for that, thank you. Uh, I needed to ask the question because everybody wants to put all the emphasis on world war two, but we know. <laughs> us truthers out here know that world war one was the moment in right. modernity <laughs> well so i mean the last things i'll say first of all like um thank you for saying what you just said like one of the one of the frustrating things about being like a college teacher is that you're i mean you see growth right like you see things happening but a lot of what you're doing is planting seeds that will germinate over someone's yeah. life right and it's very rare to get the chance to actually check in with someone for this amount of time and have this kind of conversation 15 some years later so like, i'm really grateful for that but the other thing like so let me try to put the two pieces together like um a lot of what i teach does chase an optimism it makes you start to question like are humans capable of growth and yet i'm an educator right the whole point yeah. is humans are capable of growth and uh, that that's sometimes a hard moment in some of the classes i teach where like is the lesson this is all futile because yeah. we're so self-destructive, right? On a personal and relational and national and international level that we, we can't learn. Like, so like when I say chase an optimism, that that's, doesn't mean extinguish optimism. It, yeah. it just makes, makes you that like, it, it's gonna be a hard one, right? Like they're gonna be 
not just the failures we talked about earlier, but the kind of failures that lead to the kind of things that happened in World War One or World War II or the Cold War are happening to the country of Ukraine right now. But it doesn't mean that learning is not possible. It just means like it's going to be a lot harder than we expected. And we should be a little more humble about what we're capable of. But maybe that at the same time should drive us to keep on seeking you know, better solutions to our problems and maybe to try to start to outgrow some of the self-destructive tendencies that we have as individuals and species. So I that's probably, a, that's a big note to leave on. I know. Well, you know, okay. Was, it's not going to, we can't leave there. Oh, I now shoot. have a question, right? <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I have a question for you because this is relevant. Yeah. You know, you said personal, relational internet. I think there is growth that happens on individual and personal levels, but th- I have a friend who, who coaches and he talks about to, to change a culture, to change a something, it's going to take 20 years, you know, to have that. So, so my question because you teach in a place that honors and, and respects, you know, the Christian faith, how does that faith piece help you keep in the battle, you know, like in the fight of that? Yeah. No, I was wondering if this would come up. I, um, the first thing is that, I mean, I think this is certainly, I think this is true of anyone with any faith, but I think I'll speak specifically as a Christian, right. Is that it does not ultimately depend on you right? Like the, the, there is power beyond you, right? Hope does not just lie within you, right? It, it, it is something that is made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ who, right, overcomes death itself, right? So I can't tell you how often as a Christian who teaches something like World War One, how often I try to think about resurrection, yeah. right? Um, because that's not within human power, Right. And at the same time, like that leaves me really torn as a Christian of like, wow, 2000 years after the resurrection, 10 million people are dying. Right. Like, what do I tell? Or like when I teach the Holocaust, what do I tell? What do I say to someone from Auschwitz about the resurrection and about hope? Right. So I partly it means there's going to be a tension there because we live in Christian theology often says, you know, um, the now, but the not yet. Right? Death has been conquered and yet we still die. Right? And so how do you live within that tension? But it's not ultimately up to me. And, and there are things beyond me. Like I still see as the apostle Paul says through glass darkly, right? Like I, I also try to then come back to that humility I spoke of earlier. Like we, we, we are capable of learning, but it's probably not gonna be perfect, right? We are never gonna see beyond my imperfections, my sinfulness, Christian theology would call it. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing is, um, it's still worth it because we are all made in the image of God, right? Um, I think about this as a historian all the time of like the people I'm talking about are people who bear God's image. The people I'm talking to are people I bear God's image. And I'm talking as someone who bears God's image. And that gives all of humanity inherent worth and dignity um, and value, to use an American word for it. Right. And, and so it is worth it in the sense that we are honoring that image that is there of the divine in the mortal. Right. And that that is worth doing. And then following out of that as a Christian, because that's really a Jewish concept. Right. That's Genesis. But as a Christian, then you say and you need to love those image bearers. Right. Jesus comes and says, love God. Right. And do it with your mind. Right. Like this is all honoring God because you're using your mind well, but also love your neighbors. And, you know, while you're at it, try to love your enemies, too. And think about that within the context of World War One. Yeah. Right. And so as a historian, I think a lot about what does it mean then to love those image bearing neighbors, not just in the classroom with me, but people who died. Right. Like, what does it mean to love people from the 18th century, those, those peasants you talked about from the Great Cap Massacre or those yeah. soldiers from the trenches of World War One. Like, and at the very least, it means learning to empathize with them and then taking that empathy and applying it to the present, right? Into lots yeah. of different or, situations. I think about ordinary men, right? That's a book we read in your class. These men that are asked to do the atrocities committed during the Holocaust. How do you love them in the image yep. of God, even though they've had they've been asked and followed through with? doing this terrible thing, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's an amazing sort of thing to wrestle with, even if you're not Christian, even if you're not a person of faith to, to honor other people for the fact that they are people, that they are of the same species that they, that they think and feel and, 
and experience in the exact same way that you do with minor changes mm -hmm. because we we were developed the same way yeah. whatever way we were developed right created evolved however you want to say it it is still our call to honor and love yeah. someone who who exhibits and inhabits the same space that we inhabit and it's it's i don't know yeah. And like, From my and perspective, it's a tremendous blessing, right? It is. And, and like people who are listening, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, like, I mean, I hope you hear on like, in one sense, you know, we were talking about faith, but hopefully you're not hearing certainty here, right? You're hearing yeah. doubt and tension and wrestling, right? Like that's so much part of it, but, but it, it ultimately is grounded in something too, right? And I think that's what I do come back to is there are some things I can be confident about, even if they're beyond me, right? And even if I can't see them worked out perfectly in history and my life as I think forward in the present, if I'm anxious about it, I, I think there is a kind of confidence, uh, you know, a confidence of things not seen, right. As Hebrews, right. Like I, yeah. gosh, you need another hour, Jamie. We're never, <laughs> never going to finish this conversation. <laughs> I, I agree. I am. I'm so grateful that you, you gave your time to, to our audience, to me personally. I mean, if nobody else gets anything from it, I, I am tremendously thankful that, that I'm, being challenged and grown by, by what you brought here. I knew, I knew I would be, I, it's why, I, why I was so excited about it. Um, you have had a tremendous impact, not just on my life, but on, on many that, that I talk to still regularly. You know, um, I think about, I, you know, I reached out to Brad Dahlman and said, Hey, I'm going to have shirts <laughs> on. And he's like, no way, do it. You know, like, um, and just the excitement because you brought passion, because you brought that vulnerability to the classroom. And, and uh, thank you. It's, it's been an honor, man. Oh, it's been fun. I, I really appreciate the chance to talk some more. Thanks again to Dr. Gertz. An amazing opportunity for me personally to connect. And I would challenge all of you, go and reach out to those people that have shaped who you are in some way. Ask them to do a Zoom conversation or a Google Meet or whatever. If you're nearby, take the time to drive and see them. What, an, what a gift it is to have this common ground that we stand on. And to explore that once again together is, is just a phenomenal thing. I, I try and wrap up some of these things, most of it, as you are aware, he said better than I possibly can, but some of the things that stood out to me were, you know, just from the beginning, this idea that I need to give these students a model of what it's like to be really excited about history. Well, what is it that you can show that you're passionate about and how will that engage the people that you lead? You know, we all geek out on certain things. We all are hugely passionate in different ways about different things. Let people into that. You know, and that talks to, to another point. You have to be yourself in these roles. Like you can't try and follow someone else's blueprint. You know, you have to magnify your personality. And, and there are times when that's challenging and hard because it feels like we have to be on stage and be bigger and inauthentic or whatever, but it's just not, it's not going to come across. It's not going to land in any way other than who you are. And, and if you aren't certain of what that is, if you're new to this process, new to coaching, new to leadership, what are your values? What do you stand for? And who are you? And how can the pieces of your personality that are really valuable to you be magnified while being tied to those values, while being interwoven through all of it, you know? And he, he talks about this thing that we talk about a lot, like plant the seed that will germinate later on in someone else's life. We don't, we don't get this opportunity to be in this constant relationship with everybody that we connect with, you know, as teachers, coaches, we might get three, four five years sometimes, but maybe we get a couple of weeks or a couple semesters and that is an opportunity for us to to dig in and give what we can give my favorite thing though is is this kind of a passing statement in some ways like at at the college level 
he expects students to reach beyond their grasp, right? I, I don't, I think that goes beyond college. I hope it goes beyond for all of you, right? What are we doing right now to reach beyond our current capacities? What are we doing to explore and potentially fail? What are we doing to allow those that we're leading and coaching to do the same thing? How do we create safe spaces for people to reach beyond their grasp? As a student, I felt that in his classroom. I felt that capacity to explore, to try, to not feel burdened by his credential or his expertise, but rather to feel like that was a sounding board, not a judgment. And that is an incredible gift. Thank you for that, Dr. Gertz, in showing me what it means to lead in that way, to be vulnerable and admit that I'm wrong, and also to know that my skill has value, not in the way that I've been told it should, but in that it opens the door to have a conversation for other people. And then to try and move that conversation forward as we talked about. That's the goal. That's the challenge. As always, reach up, reach beyond our grasp, and hopefully add something to the conversation in the process. I want you guys to get involved with the conversation as well. Give me some feedback. What do you think about this episode? Reach out, check out Dr. Geertz's stuff. I'll, I'll link to it. I'll link to the book. I'll link to his blog. Go and engage with it because it will challenge you. It certainly challenged me today. And as always, live eyes up. <laughs>